Hi, I'm Billy Glosson, lead pastor of Coram Deo Church in Morganton, North Carolina, and you're listening to the Coram Deo Podcast, a place to engage with sermons, devotionals, prayer, and everything else we're doing at Coram Deo. Thanks for listening. Again, y'all, we're going to be finishing out uh, the book of Nehemiah today throughout the entire chapter of Nehemiah 13. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God and the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites. And as their assistant Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Metaniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of God, house of my God, and for his service. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, 
you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made, made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons, Jehodiah, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember, remember me, O my God, for good. Let's pray. Um, <clears throat> Lord, you have been so kind and so good to us as we've walked through this story of redemption in the city of Jerusalem and, and the works of Nehemiah and the people who served you at that time in that place. But Lord, as we end this book and as we look forward to Mark next week, Lord, let us not be distracted by um, any ideas that we might have about going back to the New Testament. Instead, Lord, help us see the rich graces that you have for us here. Lord, help us to get the narrative sense of where of where this story is headed, how it's headed toward Christ. Let us see the disobedience in this chapter. Let it reflect on our own hearts. Let, us st let that call us to repentance, and let us see the grace that you have so freely offered us in Christ. I pray that Billy would have an open mind and would be wise and discerning as he brings the word this morning. Help him to be soft to your heart and what you would have him say. And I pray that you would soften our hearts as well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So Nehemiah 13, huh? What a chapter. It's like uh, watching a, a, a depressing indie movie with Josh. That's kind of what reading that's like. Uh, so here's the thing, right? It's a, it's a hard chapter. Now, as I was reading this and as I was kind of prepping through this, one of the things I thought about is, is the fact that Hannah and I, we recently bought our home, which is, again, super exciting. We've loved that. You know, we're kind of dreaming and scheming and thinking about all these different things. It's an exciting season as a first-time homeowner. We've done a few projects. We've started to make the house a little bit more ours. However, when you own a house, right, it can come with a lot of problems. One of the things that uh, kind of scares me is pests, all right? I, I hate the idea of bugs. We once had fleas when we had a cat, and, and it was a mess, and I hate that. So anything like that kind of freaks me out. Well, there's one story that I heard from a homeowner that has always kind of sat with me and freaked me out, and it's this. There were some folks who moved into their home, and as they moved in, they kept seeing ants everywhere. And they were thinking, you know, it's not that big a deal. It's an annoying pest. At least they don't bite, right? Well, they set out some ant hotels, some ant traps, trying to collect them all, trying to stop the problem. And eventually, they started following the pattern of all these different ants, and what they found in the windowsill was sawdust. And they started wondering, are these ants um, or are these termites? Like, what do we got going on here? It turns out they weren't just ants, but these were carpenter ants. And carpenter ants can actually be worse than termites because they destroy anything wooden to keep the queen alive. In order to get rid of them, you have to find the queen. If you find the queen, then you can destroy the colony. But if you can't, your house is quite literally slowly eaten out from underneath you. It could collapse literally from the inside. That's what's happening right here in Nehemiah 13. Under Nehemiah's leadership, the people of Judah had rebuilt Jerusalem's wall. 
They had reestablished the city's defenses. They were reaffirming their identity as the people of God. The work is finished. And so Nehemiah, he goes back to King Artaxerxes, back to his position, to his job. However, he gets these bad reports about Jerusalem. And he gets there and he finds they're not obeying the law. There's a neglect of the law. He finds there's abuses among the priests, among the Levites. The wall surrounding Jerusalem, yeah, they still stood, but within its protection, there's this destructive behavior and attitudes that are spreading. And now these things, they may seem small, but Nehemiah knows the implications of this compromise. He knows that it's leading to deterioration and that the foundation could crumble. This is Nehemiah 13. It's not happy, clappy, and if any, if any way, I mean, this kind of weird, overcast, drizzly, drizzly morning almost fits the ambiance of what we read here. I mean, he's just like, he's laying hands on people. He's like pulling people's hair out. Like, what is going on? Where we find out that what is true about the people of God has always been true about us. And it's this, you and I, just like the people of God in, in, in Nehemiah's day, we are prone to do the same thing over and over and over again. And what that is, is in each of us as believers, there is this type of drifting that can take place if we're not careful. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at how you and I, we are prone to drift. We're prone to drift. And what I want us to do is marvel at God's grace to us. That he still pursues goobers like me, like you, who often walk away from his goodness. And despite the fact that you and I have God's word, that we can check in on God's people from Genesis to Revelation to today, we still have the same tendencies as these sinful people. And we, though sinful and delivered, still struggle. So let's get to work. Let's see the first thing we drift from. The first thing we drift from is God's holiness. We drift from holiness. If you look back to verse 6, the end of verse 6, it says, After some time I asked leave of the king, came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Elishib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry and threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. So what's going on is Nehemiah had set all these reforms in Jerusalem, right? He had started establishing and kind of building out the people of God in this place. And then he comes back and he sees that these people who were once serious about God, these people who were following after God, that these people who had, again, lined themselves up with obedience to God, they're no longer acting in accord with what Nehemiah had set in place. So he comes back from King Artaxerxes and he sees that all these things he had put in place are now brittle if they haven't altogether completely fallen apart. Now, if you don't remember Tobiah, Tobiah had actively been working against Nehemiah from the jump. He had always been trying to stop what was happening. And now, here we get this, this, little, this little glimmer that, that <laughs> Tobiah is like, you know what would be a sweet place for me to put an apartment? The temple. Let's get rid of all this junk that people are using to worship God and let's make some room for my big flat screen and my lazy boy because I want to chill in the kingdom right here in the temple. It's a mess. It's sinful. It's wrong. He had been undermining the people of God. He had been undermining the seriousness about the pursuit of God among God's people. Nehemiah leaves and he comes back and he finds this and guess what happens? He loses it. 
right? He starts chucking this stuff out of the temple, right? You guys ever driven by and seen a bunch of stuff on the lawn? It's like that, okay? He's like, you're out. I'm evicting you. You don't belong here. Here's the thing. There's this drift away from holiness. And yet we read that and we could kind of like laugh and be like, who would do that? But we too drift away from holiness. If you check in on us here today, you can see that we all have a tendency over a period of time to grow less and less serious about holiness. We tend to grow lax in our seriousness about who God is, what he's done, and who he's calling us to be. We tend to allow things in our lives that shape us in such a way that does not motivate us. It does not motivate us towards God, but rather it pulls us away. And catch this, we have a tendency to allow a lot of things in our life that are what I would say morally neutral, right? They do not have good effects on us. Now, I could get really specific, but I think we all know what I'm talking about. We all have these things in our lives that we give precedence to over and above God. Things that take us away from our relationship with God, our desire to know him and follow him. And and here's the thing. I think for the most part, what's going to get most of us, right? What's going to cause most of us to stumble, most of us to drift away from God's holiness is not some overtly horrific thing. Now, certainly some people can face addiction and struggle and there can be hard, really, really difficult things in our lives. But I don't think for most of us, we're going to be overcome by heroin, okay? I don't. I think for most of us, we're going to be slowly pushed away from those things that we would say are morally neutral. You see, that's not where most of us struggle. What it will be is that morally neutral area, that thing that's not blatantly evil, it's not wrong, but for whatever reason, we give it so much room in our hearts. And it distracts us, and it pulls us away from the things of God. See, there are these things in your life and my life that rob our affection for Jesus. We often leave these things unchecked, right? We don't moderate ourselves. And before you know it, we care less and less and less about God's word. We care less and less about the pursuit of Christ's likeness. Now, here's the thing. God is incredibly gracious to us in this drift. In fact, again, if you were to check in on us at any point in Christian history, you're going to find people who are prone to drift away from his holiness. So what does God do? Well, he gives us a couple things to really help us. One is he gives us his word. We have the word of God, right? The reason you have that Bible that's in your lap or on your device right now is once again that God might guide you. But that's not all he gives you. He gives you the community of faith. He gives you each other. And let me be honest with you. I have blind spots. And I don't know what they are because they're blind spots, right? I don't know what they are. But what God has given me because of those blind spots is the word of God, the whole, that the Holy Spirit might open my eyes to them as I study his word. But he's also given me good, godly friends who know me and who I've invited into my life to kind of read my mail, if you will. Here's the thing that I've come to the conclusion after a decade of pastoral ministry that one of the most loving things a person will ever do is confront you in your sin. The reason I say that is because 90% of the time, it doesn't go well, right? right? If, you, if you confront somebody in, your, in their sin, if someone comes to me and they're like, hey, Bill, you know, I noticed this, this inconsistency. I noticed this, this drift in you, right? It's almost always met with justification and then accusation. It's like, okay, well, let me explain what happened, right? You don't really know. And, you know, actually, I've been thinking about it, and there's some things I want to talk to you about. You know, that's kind of what usually happens. We get really defensive 
and we get really frustrated. When you confront someone about their sin, you're almost always risking the relationship itself. Here's the thing. This requires a type of love that's not a weak type of love. It's a love that a person is willing to risk for the good of that person. So God, knowing that you and I were prone to drift, we're prone to wonder, right? This isn't new. We sing about this. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's why we sing that. God has given us an anchor. He's given us a tether. He's given us a way to stay safe in the water. He's given us the word of God and he's given us each other, which is why I want to continually lay before you that it's not just good enough that you and I show up here on Sunday mornings and check a box. You will not pull out of the community of faith what you should be pulling out of the community of faith if sermons and songs are all you're getting. We need one another. And we need one another honestly. Right? Do you catch that? We don't need pretty you. We don't. We don't need put together you. I shared a quote this week that like made me want to lay down and, and just like drink a couple. I didn't know. I was like, what? I need some water. I need to think. Paul Washer said, so many of us are, wear, are mad about wearing masks to church, but we've been doing it for years. Woof, right? You see, the last thing we need is pretty you the one who's all put together, the one who doesn't have struggles, the one who wears a cape and never has any doubts, the one whose marriage is perfect, whose kids always obey just with a look, right? We don't need that. We don't need that. We need you. We need honest you. One of the greatest mysteries of the Christian faith is that our weaknesses, right, our, our, our weaknesses edify and encourage us to greater holiness. Man, isn't that weird? Isn't that strange? That strengths and perceived strengths, and in particular projected strengths, those things that we try to display to people, they can actually at times hinder growth in the things of God. Whereas when we're honest in our weakness, it has a way to stir us to greater holiness because it creates safe places for us to actually experience the grace of God. This is what God has given to you in your tendency to lack seriousness about his holiness, his word, and the people of God. Let's see the second thing we drift from. The second thing we drift from is authority. Look to verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? The second way that you and I were prone to, to drift away from God and get into dangerous waters is that over a period of time, we drift away from godly biblical authority. Now, this is tough because, again, this sounds a little self-serving. I get that. That, that you know, I'm talking about, oh, you know, you should listen to your pastor. You know, you should, you should have good biblical sound authority. But, but hear me. I think there are two dangers in the church. I think one is a fear of leadership where people want to have complete autonomy. Don't speak into my life. Don't talk to me. The other is that overbearing, really controlling leader. Right? And, and I think that that causes us to be rightfully a little bit defensive in this area. But if we think back, right, I, I think back to me personally, you know, Hannah and I were foster parents for a season and it was a really great time, but it was particularly challenging. One night we were having a really challenging night. This little girl looked dead in my soul and said, you're not my dad. And she was right. But I was there to serve as authority in her life. And the same is true for us. 
You see, God calls you, he calls me under biblical authority. Look at Hebrews 13, verse 17. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. And we're going to finish reading that verse, but I want to lay this before you. Nobody joins a church off of this verse, right? Nobody is like, you know what? I'm going to Hebrews 13, obey your leaders and submit to them. No one, right? People join churches like this. Man, I love the music there. It's so good. Or that guy, he's so funny. He makes me laugh. But the Bible just said, when it comes to joining a church, you're submitting to and agreeing to obey the leaders of that church. Now that word sounds crazy, right? Obey, it sounds goofy and wacky and weird. People rarely think that way when they join a church, right? They're rarely like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go obey these men whom God has put over my care. And when they weigh in on life and wisdom, I'm going to obey. I'm going to submit. When they preach, when they proclaim the word of God, I'm going to obey. I'm going to submit. Nobody thinks like that anymore. In fact, if they do something, those leaders that we don't like, or they try to weigh in wisdom on our lives, we're just going to find another church that stays out of our business. Do you see how that puts you in harm's way? What the Bible says about the people of God, particularly those of us who are Christians who have joined the church, is what we have to do is obey and submit. But listen, there is a lot more weight on the leaders, on the pastors, than there is you. Watch this. This is the rest of the verse. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Here's what the word of God has said. You are to obey obey and submit if you're a covenant member and as a pastor seeking to raise up more leaders, you know, we're we're, going to make sure that we can hold people accountable and encourage them and care for them. And here's the thing, that's terrifying because I have to stand and other leaders will have to stand in front of God and give an account for how we've shepherded you, how we've cared for you how we've laid tracks for you, how we held you accountable, how we stirred your affections for the gospel and whether or not we served you or leached off of you. That's a heavy weight. But let me say this. Y'all, it is the honor of my life to be your pastor. And knowing the struggles that we've had since we moved here, knowing that this pandemic would come, all of it, I would do it all over again for the glory of God. You guys are a delight You're a joy. And let me say this, it is God's will and his command that you would find a church and join it. Let me me be really clear, right? This is is something that, that, this is like my soapbox. This whole, I love Jesus, but not the church nonsense, it's gotta stop, because that is a lie. Augustine says, no man can have God as his father who does not have the church as his mother. Now I'll tell you this, if you come up to me and you're like, Bill, yo, man, you and I, we are cool, but I hate that stupid wife of yours. Man, then you and I, we are not cool. If you make fun of Hannah, I might karate chop you in the throat. Like, that's not cool, right? You can't be like, Bill, yo, great sermon. Your wife looks stupid. I'm going to be mad. Like, that's not okay. We can't do that, right? That's absurd. So for you, right, for your own soul care, because you and I, we have a tendency to drift away to think that we're smarter than everyone else and that we, we don't know what our blind spots are. God gives us his bride, the church, because he loves us. And let me say this. I feel bold enough to say this. If you are not a member of a local congregation, I'm not talking Coram Deo. I'm saying connected to a local body, affiliated with a member to a local congregation, you are walking in disobedience. I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but I am saying that you are in sin. 
Look, and listen, we're not doing a membership drive today. I'm not going to be like, all right, so membership class is next week. I'm not doing that. Okay, that's not the point. I'm saying find somewhere that's serious about the word of God. Find somewhere that's serious about caring for your soul. Find a place where there's a group of men and women who are willing to pour themselves out for your benefit and join. There are no perfect churches because you're there. Okay, it just does not exist. If that's what you're holding out for, you're going to be holding out forever. It is in most of us a rebellious spirit that would not have us joining anywhere, not belonging anywhere. You see, the thing about attending but not belonging is that you can control that. And that's why we like to do it. We like to control. Nobody's going to tell me my business. But what good is the church if we have no right to get in your business and you have no right to be in ours? Do you see how you even short circuit all that God has done for you in calling you to be a part of the people of God? Man, we have so individualized our faith that we hurt ourselves. We're prone to kick against godly biblical leadership. But look at the scriptures, right? They hated the prophets. They hated Christ. They hated many of the New Testament leaders. And to this day, you have people who treat the church like an ecclesiological buffet. We'll get this, a little bit of that. Don't want that. Man, let's not drift away from this, y'all. We need each other. We need the community of faith. We need godly, biblical authority in our life. Let's keep moving. We see thirdly, we drift. Now, this is a big one, right? And I think almost every parent here is going to do cartwheels for this one because this is true. We drift from rest. We drift from rest. And all God's people said, amen. Look at verse 15. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day and I warned them on the day when they sold food. Then jump down to verse 18. Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and more? And on this city, now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Now Nehemiah is frustrated. He's pointing them back to their past saying, hey, we've ignored the Sabbath before, right? And it didn't go well. And then in verse 21, it says he laid hands on them. Man, I love that. And some of you parents read that and you're like, mm, that's, a, that's a life verse. Yeah, I, it's hilarious, right? It's like, what is going on? Nehemiah's like, that, all right, it's enough. You know, it's like, what is happening? I'm sure some of us have wanted to lay hands on people who are acting foolish. Now, it probably shouldn't be your life verse, okay? So why is Nehemiah upset? Why is he frustrated? Well, because they're not honoring the Sabbath. Now, let me say this. So much of what the Sabbath is is lost on us today. But, but here's where we're prone to drift. And this is significant. Catch this. We are prone to drift by doing rather than being. We are prone to drift by doing rather than being. Let me try to explain that. You see, the Sabbath was woven into the fabric of how God created the universe to be because you and I, by our nature, are going to try to earn what cannot be earned. There's something that can happen when I complete tasks. When I can just kind of check something off, there's this kind of euphoric, ah, I did it. I did it, y'all. I just accomplished something spectacular. I just did the dishes. It's not a big deal, right? But, but that happens, right? This past week, Hannah came home from work and the dishes were done and the bed was made and I had dinner on the stove and I, and I saw Hannah, she was so happy that all this stuff was done. She's like, thanks, sweetie, I really appreciate this. And I'm like, yep, crushing it, killing it. Got done with work, came home early, 
cleaned up like a boss. That's how I felt. I was, I, I loved it. Now here's what happens. It does not take long before those things become enslaving to me. Here's what I mean. I, I feel like I have to do those things. I have to get those things done. And if I don't, then my whole identity is, is screwed up because if I'm not getting everything done, if I'm not the man, if I'm not the boss, then I'm a wreck. And it's enslaving. I have to preach a lights out sermon every single weekend. I have to be the best husband possible. And now I'm carrying all the weight of what is impossible. And I am crushed and owned by any and all failure. What God says to you to remind you, because you and I are stubborn, is once a week, y'all just stop and be. Your identity isn't in those things. Your identity is in me. It's in Jesus. Your identity isn't in what you can accomplish or what you can get done or how you can clean yourself up or whether or not you do this or whether or not you do that. Your identity is found in the adopting work of Jesus Christ. We made a joke this week. We were introducing people at C Group, and I was like, who are you and what do you do? And again, that's how we typically define ourselves, by what we do then rather than who we are, who we should be, which is a child of the living God. Right? We have a tendency to forget that. Almost all of us do. In fact, most of us have a default movement of trying to perpetually clean ourselves up so that God might approve of us. And what the Sabbath is going to do, it's going to step right in front of that nonsense and God just screams from the heavens, stop, just stop. The work is finished. You might have real struggles with sin, right? You might be really wrestling with addiction. And listen, I want you to fight to pursue holiness, but you and I need to remember that we do not earn our salvation. You do not earn your salvation, it is by the blood and righteousness alone that you are saved. And the Sabbath screams out, stop, just be. Be my son. Be my daughter. I love you right here, right now. But we drift. And the last thing we see is this. We drift towards laziness. Look at verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we listen, then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? All right, again, this book ends weird. It just ends weird. It's like, okay, super exciting, rebuild the wall, rebuild the people. God is on the throne. Let's go. All of a sudden, people are like speaking in other languages and people are getting married and Nehemiah is pulling people's hair out. And you're like, what weird indie movie did Josh just take me to? Okay. I made that joke twice because that's how many times it's happened. All right, here's the deal. Nehemiah literally shows up and he beats half the nation and then the book's over and he's like, remember me, Lord. And you're like, what did I just read? But here's the thing. The last drift that occurs is we have a tendency to be very nearsighted or lazy about the things of God. 
What this passage is talking about is inviting into your life cultures that are adamantly opposed to the things of God. Now, I, I, I want to say this. People have for a long, long time used this passage to say that interracial marriage is a sin, and that is a lie from the pit of hell. That is not what this passage is talking about. That's bad hermeneutics. That's whack theology, and I will not tolerate that kind of nonsense racism. That's foolishness. What this passage is talking about is inviting into your life cultures that are adamantly opposing the things of God. You see, this is talking about being inundated with another kingdom, which we cannot be. Now, here's the deal. Marriage is an incredibly helpful example. Now, I've known some amazing, godly, single women who just, man, they wanted to get married so bad, so they find a guy. And this guy, I mean, he's a good dude. He just doesn't really love Jesus very much. I mean, he'll go to church, but he's kind of just going to church because it's missionary day and she's bringing him. Then she ends up marrying this dude who's not serious about Jesus. And here's where it's nearsighted. What now happens when they have kids? What's the temperature in the family union? What's the goal? What's the desire of the family? Is the desire that they would grow and challenge and shape and see their children become godly? Is it that they might raise children, that they might have a, a family unit that declares the glories of God to the world around us? And what about money? What do they do with their money? Are they open-handed with their money? Or are they just building bigger and better houses and getting nicer and nicer stuff? And all of this is decided, right, by the family. Man, I have met so many women who are far more lonely and distraught today because of being married than I've ever met single women who are lonely and desperate who are not married. But listen, this isn't the only way we drift. I think this is a helpful illustration. You see, we can buy into the kingdom of money or the kingdom of maman, as scripture calls it. If you found a place of care where you're, where you're growing, right? If you're connected to a church, a body that is challenging you, that's shaping you, that's encouraging you, and you decide, you know what? We're going to move across this country to, to some bizarre place where there's no good churches at all because I might make a little bit more money, maybe five or ten grand more a year. I can get a little bit nicer of a car, a little bit bigger of a house. Man, that's short-sighted. That's foolish. Again, we don't have categories for this in our day and age. We don't. That's why we've seen the church become so weak. There's this kind of laziness that occurs over a period of time when it comes to the people of God. We're not serious about the things of God. We're lackadaisical in our approach to growing in godliness. Now, none of this, catch this, none of this should feel like a heavy weight, a heavy burden to you. Because this is actually God outing us. Right? It should be a bit, a bit comfortable. Oh, he knows. He knows I'm lazy. You see, what happens is God causes us to marvel at him because God has always known this about us. And yet, our God is steadfast and long-suffering and he hears the cries of his people and he delivers them from evil and he rescues them from sin. And despite the fact that all of us are repeatedly on this list over and over and over again, our God declares, I know. I know. And I've made a path for you. And I've granted forgiveness to you. Now, Nehemiah is a book that shows us the people of God rebuilding. It shows us the people that stumble out the gate. And it shows us that the Old Testament is insufficient. Y'all, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. Jesus never drifted, though tempted in every way. 
Jesus knows that we don't know how to rest. So he purchases our eternal rest and he clothes us in his righteousness. This morning, as you reflect on this list, where do you see drifting in your life? Let me say this, friend. If you don't believe in Jesus, my hope is that you would see today why Christians desperately need Jesus. We're not perfect. We're nowhere near. We need the hope of the gospel. And I would invite you to know the one who makes all things new. I'd love to talk to you more about who Jesus is. But friend, if you know Jesus, where have you seen this drift in your life? How have you been lackadaisical about holiness? How have you let insignificant things take room in your heart and push Jesus out? And would you repent of that? Would you pursue Jesus in his word and in community? Are you drifting from biblical authority in your life? Do you tend to just kind of tow the waters of the church? Would you repent of that and join an an imperfect church, whether that's here at Quorumdale or somewhere else? Would you get connected? Are you drifting from rest? Right? Are you always doing? Would you receive the invitation from Jesus that says, come to me, you weary and burden, and lay those things at his feet and find real, lasting, eternal rest? Would you just be instead of do? Finally, have you seen other kingdoms taking root in your life, places where you've become nearsighted? Would you ask God to give you clear vision? Would you pursue him above all else? Man, would we know the goodness of Jesus? We land the plane here in Nehemiah 13. And I think all of us can read it and say, man, that's confusing and weird. And it shows us how desperately we need Jesus. And that's why we're going to start in Mark next week, so that we can walk with him, see him, and hear from him. But today, let's respond God, would you forgive us for our drifting? Let's pray together. God, so often we can drift from you. We can find ourselves in places, Lord, where we're not trusting in you, where we're relying on other things besides you. God, would you forgive us? God, would we be a people who cling to you desperately? Would we be a people who know you, who walk in obedience with you? Jesus, we are so thankful for the hope of the gospel that even though we can drift in these ways, you still chase after us, that you pursue us, and that you offer us life and life eternal. You offer to us freedom and hope. God, would you help us to see that we can't earn our salvation, that the problem with drifting is not that we would just try harder, but that we would finally and fully say, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. Only you, Jesus, can save me. And will we cry out in repentance? And would you come in and heal these broken places in us, Lord? We're so thankful for the hope of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Quorum Deo podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or our website, quorumdeonc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram for a bigger picture inside the life of the church grace and peace be with you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.